There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski. Greg, I realize that every show I say either your name first or my name first. I don't seem to have a consistent pattern. We'll mix it up that way. Keep everyone on their toes. (laughs) Today, we have our first guest speaker, and we're so excited to have him. The speaker's name is Tim Noonan, and Tim is the former Managing Director of Strategic Business Initiatives with Russell Investments. He's also an author of a book called Someday Rich, Planning for Sustainable Tomorrows Today. And more importantly, Tim has been a friend, mentor, and business coach of the CM Group for, it's got to be at least 10 years. Yeah, at least. That's right. So we had the pleasure of meeting with Tim today. Tim has recently retired from Russell Investments and still active in the business community as a consultant. And we just really enjoyed our conversation with him. Tim has some awesome insight in terms of the changes that have occurred in the investment industry and in the business of financial advice over the last 30 years, and also has some great ideas on how to focus on things that are important and avoid spending a lot of time on things that are unimportant. So it was a great conversation, and I certainly hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Tim, it's great to have you on the show. As I said, the first guest we've ever had on Free Lunch. And what an honor it is to have you as that person. So thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I feel honored. It's a pleasure, delight. You know, Colin, I have prominently displayed in my closet my honorary Calgary cowboy hat, (laughs) which you gave me. And I've always really admired what you do for your clients. And so I'm delighted to help you in any way I can. Well, that's great. The episode we want to go through today with you is focused around something you and I have talked about at length in the past, and that is how important is trust in a working relationship and get into a little bit about the evolution of advice that you've seen during your career. So let's just kick it off with something around that. Where do you rank trust when it comes to working with your financial professionals? In one sense, it's a constant. Trust is the one thing you can't do without and hard to make, easy to bust. I would say that trust as a required attribute of a relationship with any kind of advisor, but especially a financial advisor, a banker, anyone that is in a position to alter the security of your family, you just can't underline that enough. That's number one. However, I would say that While it's important that it be there, what's changed is what you need to trust the guy about. What does the advisor need to know or do in order to earn your trust? That's really what's changed, Colin. 30 years ago, when I started in the business, trust and credibility were sort of inseparable. And it really had a lot to do with how much you knew about economics and how much you knew about the markets how much you knew about particular industries and companies. Trust was really rooted 
in expertise around particular financial, economic sort of issues. That's really changed. Today, I would argue that what you need to be trustworthy about is has way more to do with how well you know the client's situation, how good of a listener you are, how attentive you are to details, how objective you can be in putting together a composite of what's going on with your client and their family. The locus of expertise has moved from really specific things about the markets now to what are the conditions and the needs of the client. That's really where clients should put their trust. And frankly, that's where advisors need to earn their trust. Agreed. Well said. And that focus on outcome-oriented sort of relationships rather than product-specific oriented relationships is what I hear. Yes, absolutely. At the end of the day, what clients care about and what changes the quality of their life, the options that they have, the degree to which they can help their children and their parents or other people in their community, those are the outcomes that matter much more than being able to show how smart you are about a particular topic in the capital markets. Now, having said that, I don't want you to get the impression that it isn't important to understand financial products, especially complex financial products. Knowing how a reverse mortgage works is indispensable to understanding whether you ought to recommend that to a client or not. So that expertise about the products, of course, it has to be there, but it has to be joined by an equal amount of expertise and attentiveness to the situation of the client. Exactly. Greg, you got a question for Tim? Well, I'm just wondering, Tim, in addition to, as you say, the trust has always been a factor in a successful investor and client relationship. What other major changes have you seen in the business of giving financial advice over the last 30 years? Well, I'd say the number one thing is that the distance, the intellectual gap between the advisor and the client has closed. It used to be the case that the typical financial advisor or money manager or corporate banker, for that matter, really knew much, much, much more than their client did. And often that gap, that information gap, really led the client to think, well, I don't really need to understand these things because you understand these things. That's all gone. Now, with a Google box and 15 minutes and reasonably industrious person can know really quite a lot about a very broad range of topics, especially about economics and markets and financial products and so forth. Well, not just to stop there, about financial planning, about college funding, about retirement planning. So because information is now on a much more equal basis, this gap between the quote-unquote expert and their client has really narrowed. And I think in a way that's like the best possible news because it really creates the potential for the time that is spent between the client and the financial advisor. Instead of using that time to explain things or defend ideas or promote a particular approach, instead they can be much more as two equals at a table in problem solving. So I would really encourage you to think about the time that you spend around the table with a client as problem-solving time and not 
chalkboard time. That's really important, Tim, because a lot of times these days we're, we're hearing more about do-it-yourself investors, and you're absolutely right in that from a strict understanding of product selection or other selection of investment services, many clients can do it yourself. But at the same time, there is a gap, and the gap seems to be more in other areas, whether it's planning-related or behavioral. What do you think about the impact of behavioral economics or behavioral finance on the role of the advisor, and how does that play in? Well, Greg, that's a very perceptive connection you're making between those two ideas. You have no way to know this, Greg, but my dad was a lawyer, and my dad famously used to say to me when I was a little kid that a lawyer who represented himself in a conflict had a fool for a client. (laughs) And what was meant by that was kind of like they couldn't be trusted to represent themselves, but they could be trusted to represent other people. And in a way, that gets to kind of like the number one reason why do-it-yourself financial advice is problematic. It isn't at all because of the expertise gap. It's really because two heads are better than one, and two heads are calmer than one. Two heads are less reactive than one. And very often, the really damaging thing, the damaging mistakes that investors can make are because of blind spots. They didn't see around a particular corner that extra question that should have been asked wasn't asked, or even worse, the, they get into conditions in the markets when the markets go sideways and they lose their nerve. And so there's a lot of reasons, behavioral and otherwise, why if you have yourself for your own financial advisor, you have a fool for a client. And it's, it's not because people are stupid or incapable of doing it. Not at all. It's just because it's back to what you're doing around the table. If it's problem solving, problem solving with more than one perspective, more than one way of thinking, more than one set of experiences is always going to trump trying to figure it out on your own. That's really good advice. And we would subscribe to that for sure. I guess I think of my own career when I started, and I'm sure we all had similar experiences where the focus was on, I don't know, what stock am I supposed to buy or what bond am I supposed to buy or which mutual fund should I be investing in and how our role has changed so much over the last 20 years to, as we started this discussion about outcome-oriented investing and marrying sort of planning to results. In your book you wrote, Tim, Someday Rich, was this the basis of your novel? Is that what got you going? I always felt that investing was really largely about knowing what the target looked like and what the destination was. I grew up in my investing education at Russell, when Russell was building the indexes that ultimately would come to dominate the institutional money management marketplace. I I think today, the amount of assets that are benchmarked against indexes that were created at Russell during my time, not by me, certainly, but by my colleagues at Russell during my time there, it runs into the many trillions of dollars. So I came from a research culture that really subscribed to the idea that success or failure was largely a matter of the benchmark you were measuring yourself against. And I think the benchmarks that we all measure ourselves against today, they're all personal benchmarks. They're benchmarks of what success and failure mean to us in a very personalized way. So measuring yourself against the TSE is a lot less satisfying than measuring your income against whether or not it exceeds the amount that you typically need to spend 
every month or every year or however you measure that. So as we've begun to measure all success in every regard of our life in a much more personal way because of the personalized way in which the little box in our pocket talks to us all day, (laughs) it means that it's irrelevant how somebody else measures success. It really matters whether or not you know how to measure it, which is oddly enough, half the battle, and then whether or not the people you have around you are helping you get and stay on those trajectories. What kind of advice, Tim, do you give for people that just get overwhelmed by the news as you're experiencing where you live and we're experiencing up here? We're totally overwhelmed by news about coronavirus or about what's happening to the economy and the trillions of dollars that are being spent to mitigate the impact on the economy from the coronavirus. And so what kind of advice can you give people to sort of set that aside and not have it overwhelm their decisions, whether they're financial or otherwise, as we go through this? Well, I would remind everybody about kind of Maslow's hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of priorities. The first and the foremost is the physical safety of you and your loved ones. And as much as possible, trying to do what you can to control that. I really am particularly empathic to parents with young kids or adolescent kids or young adults who, for whatever reason, have found their way back home to be safe in a home environment at this time. It's really difficult. It's always difficult to be in a cage. It's particularly bizarre and difficult to be in this cage that we have especially when you add a lot of political dimensions of people who they don't believe the cage or think it's of our own design or for whatever other reason, rebel against the scientific facts. So that's number one is to stay safe and keep other people around you safe. So safety first. I would say the second is to stay sane. And that is to try to keep your doom scrolling to a minimum. Try to make sure you're listening to different types of channels of news and points of view so you don't succumb to a particular echo chamber and let that take you down a lunatic fringe. So I think sane is the second priority. And I think the third, honestly, is to stay shrewd. This is really a time to be on your toes. And the two things I think, well, I'll just describe my own experience in this time. Everyone, I think, at some sort of incredible level has been made exactly the same. All human beings are, at the moment, equal. All have this experience in common of uncertainty. And I'll just say for myself, what came out of it for me, which in the end, as I was sharing with you the other day, has been extremely valuable and clarifying and liberating because you really do become very, very clear on your values and your priorities. So for me, there were really two insights. The first insight was the colossal amount of waste and carelessness that was part of our lives and our household. I think that's the unfortunate side effect of affluence in our society. We've got more than we need more often than not. And we really had to take a look when you could only go to the grocery store (laughs) once a week and you could only be there for 45 minutes. That means that you might think twice about what's on the list. So I think it's like, what do you really need to consume? And that led actually to a second kind of halfway of inquiry, which was very, very important for me and for my family. 
And that was to think about what they sometimes refer to as our non-working assets. Where do we own things that no longer deliver pleasure or utility or in some way we've collected things, I'm sure like many of your clients, that throughout the course of their lifetimes as successful people, after they raise their children and accumulate wealth and they pick up a cottage along the way, they pick up a boat along the way, they pick up a whatever it is. And suddenly you wind up with this collection of things which you basically exchanged your wealth for. Sometimes those things are wonderful boons to you and your family. They become the seed of terrific family memories of the place where families gather and so forth. At other times, they don't collect memories. They collect cobwebs and they don't produce income. They drain income. And we really, in my own family, we took a very sober accounting of where was it that we had managed to collect things that at the time seemed like a great idea, but really in the full light of day, you can see they just don't make the cut. And if you had to throw some ballast over the side, what would be the first to go? I really encourage you to do that exercise with your clients because I think it's very liberating. Number one, to see how much you consume beyond what you really need to consume. And I think most of us have a really great ability to be more thrifty, to spend less, to spend more carefully, to spend less addictively. And then at a more strategic level, to think about all of the things you own as part of your wealth portfolio, not just your stocks and bonds and mutual funds and so forth, but everything that's part of your family's balance sheet. What column is it in? Is it in a debit column? Is it in a credit column? Are they in the right columns? It's worth thinking about that. One maybe just kind of afterthought on all that is my family, thank God, was nobody has died in my family. Nobody has become gravely ill. Several of my brothers and sisters had the virus and they were quite ill, but they recovered. And it doesn't appear to be life-threatening to them. But I realized that that's not everybody. And many people have had very, very direct and serious experience with this, and including loved ones who died that they couldn't have proper funerals for. And it's really, it's a tragedy. On the other hand, there are millions of people who've experienced virtually no effect from it and are bewildered by what they see on the news because it's so alien to their day-to-day experience. So the last thing I would say is right now is really an important time to remember that compassion is a very valuable human trait. Compassion, maybe even more than trust, certainly just as much as trust, is something that really matters right now. And so to be compassionate to other people, to give compassion to other people, whether or not your experience has been dire or otherwise, that's a smart investment one way or the other because you never know down the road whether or not you're going to be in those shoes. Great points. Tim, I've been reading a lot lately about the idea of time affluence, not so much financial affluence, and how important time affluence is to us as people, as family members, and that's a bucket that we can all fill right now. Absolutely. And I love the idea of just focusing on compassion and being kind. That's an overarching theme for sure. You think about these little simple things like wearing a mask. I mean, who knows? 
Does it really work? Is it really necessary? Who knows? But let's say it only worked a little bit. That might still be reason enough. Well, you've raised some great points there as well, Tim, and that is that in our line of business, there's a tendency to overly weight the conversation around investments or what's happening in the markets and that kind of thing. And that's only one small part of everybody's life. And if they can think of some of these things, obviously we can't downplay the importance of having a well thought out and well structured financial situation. But as you say, and certainly your discussion about doing an asset inventory and making sure that everything you own has a purpose and has utility and value to you and your family. Those are very inspirational thoughts. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) This is not the conversation that we would have had 20 years ago. (laughs) 20 years ago, we would have had an interview in which I would have been desperate to demonstrate within the first few moments of the interview, my knowledge superiority to yours about some esoteric topic, probably through the use of a lot of academic references and using jargon and acronyms and so forth, all of which would be to demonstrate that I could really put you in your place when it came to that topic. And I don't know, maybe I'm just getting older. I just, that to me seems a lot less like communication and a lot more like showmanship. And I'm delighted that that is now kind of, I think people see that for what it is today and they don't want that. That doesn't look like expertise. It certainly doesn't look like problem solving. So yeah, you're right. I think 20 years ago, people thought differently about what made them look smart. And hopefully today, advisors anyway, like doctors or lawyers or any other professional are thinking much more or should be thinking much more about what makes them look helpful, what makes them look empathic, what makes them look collaborative, much more so than what makes them look in some way superior to the people that they're serving. I mean, after all, who's serving whom? (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's been a fun conversation and a real one, which I truly appreciate. I knew you'd bring it. And I was so happy that you're able to join us as the first guest speaker on our podcast. And Tim, our podcast is called Free Lunch, and it's all based on opportunity cost. And we appreciate you taking the opportunity to spend some time with us. I regret that I will not be at the stampede with you this year, Colin. Well, nobody will be. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. I'm not the only guy that's going to miss it. On to 2021. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you again, Tim. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Take care. You too. All right. Well, that certainly was a great interview with Tim Noonan. Some of the things that Tim brought up with us, Greg, that he didn't talk about in the interview were something around taking an asset inventory of your own assets and figuring out which non-working assets work for you still and which ones offer no utility. Also getting into the importance of maybe just taking a look at your will and estate planning, which is something that we're going to be talking about in future podcasts and the importance of just doing a calculation of what is your true income and what do you really need? So what else did we learn today? Well, I mean, it was a great conversation. I mean, Tim talked about trust and the importance of trust in any relationship, but in our cases, obviously, in the relationship between an investor and a financial advisor, he certainly talked about the evolution of advice and how some of the differences in the relationships from 30 years ago when he started in the business 
You, know, you talked a lot about the importance of empathy and compassion, just given what's going on in the world today. So that was great. And it was also, I found inspiring, just talking about a new way to look at what's important in your life, looking at sort of the implications for both your financial as well as your emotional well-being. And so, yeah, I thought it was just a great interview and it's always a pleasure to talk to Tim. It was great. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch. We'll see you next time when we'll be chatting about, not sure yet, but I'm sure it will be great. Absolutely. See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.